so we are continuing our, our series through Esther, as pa- Pastor Bobby mentioned last week. Chapters 1 and 2 serve as sort of a, a prologue to the main action of the book of Esther. We'll see uh, in this chapter some of the major pieces coming into place, and we're fed a few pieces of crucial information, the importance of which we, we won't see until later. Pastor Bobby also mentioned last week one of the most notorious aspects of this book, which is that God himself is never mentioned. Uh, None of the names used for God in the Old Testament show up in any of these chapters. As I was reflecting on that, I I thought of the the James Webb Telescope. Um, If you're not familiar, the James Webb Telescope... Uh, was built by NASA in conjunction with the Canadian and European space agencies, and last December uh, was launched into space for the purpose of seeing deep space in a way that humans have never seen it before. It took years to build. Um, It was over budget over time, but it's finally been launched. It's now orbiting the sun about a million miles uh, away from planet Earth. And this is an advantage it has over the Hubble telescope. The Hubble uh, you might be familiar with. It was launched 30 years ago, 1990, or over 30 years ago, excuse me, and it orbits the Earth. Uh, there are many times because of that that the Earth and the Moon block its view of space. So the Webb Telescope doesn't have to worry about that since it has its own orbit, but the primary advantage the Webb Telescope has is that it uses infrared technology. This means it's able to see beyond the visible light spectrum. So the Hubble Telescope can see much farther than you or I, but it's still essentially a very powerful camera. The web can see even further and clearer to the things that the human eye couldn't see no matter how far we traveled. So what I'd like to do this morning is to take a sort of infrared telescope to the book of Esther, specifically chapter 2. And even though God is not explicitly mentioned, if we have eyes to see it, we can find him there. I hope that you all see this morning and that you're encouraged by the fact that the hiddenness of God is not the same thing as the absence of God. The silence of God is not the same thing as his neglect. We will see that bad people, bad choices, bad circumstances not only fail to stop the purposes of God, but are in fact used to achieve his purposes. My main point is that God works in all things to accomplish his perfect will, and we need only be faithful. Let's look then at the first four verses of Esther 2. Sometime later, when King Ahasuerus' rage had cooled down, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what was decided against her. The king's personal attendants suggested, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in each province of his kingdom so that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem at the fortress of Susa. Put them under the supervision of Haggai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, and give them the required beauty treatments. Then the young woman who pleases the king will become queen instead of Ashti. This suggestion pleased the king, and he did accordingly. My first point is that God works in the wicked plans of men. God works even in the wicked plans of men. Our text picks up sometime after uh, the events of chapter 1. Later on, by the time Esther goes to the king, it's been about four years, almost five years, since Vashti refused 
to appear before the king. So we can assume this scene takes place sometime in that intervening period. From the writings of uh, Greek history, we can learn that Ahasuerus, in Greek known as Xerxes, attempts in this period to take over Greece. Uh, he, he summons his enormous army. He builds uh, an enormous bridge to cross the Strait of Hellespont and marches into Greece. The famous story of the Spartan, the 300 Spartan soldiers slowing him down, um, not defeating him. They, they were ultimately defeated. And he does eventually occupy a portion of Greece, but then in fear that he will be cut off from returning to Persia, he, he leaves without fully conquering Greece and therefore ends up back in his palace at Susa, dealing with the, the embarrassment of war and perhaps passing by the quiet quarters where the queen used to reside, regretting his, his rash actions. He had declared that she would never again enter his presence, and in ancient Persia, the king's edict was eternal. Even the king himself couldn't contravene such a command. So the king's young men hatch a plan, Notice that this is not the king's council, who in chapter 1 hatched a brilliant plan to broadcast the king's embarrassment to the entire empire. Perhaps having realized these wise guys weren't that wise, the king hears out his butlers to see what they have to say. They notice Boss was feeling a little down, so they did what any good friend would do. They recommended an international beauty pageant to replace the queen. In chapter 1, the king threw a six-month party to show off his enormous wealth and power. And now he's hosting his own personal beauty contest. Tim Keller, commenting on Esther 1 and 2, points out that in ancient Persia, all that mattered about men was their wealth and power. And all that mattered about women was their physical beauty. Aren't you glad we don't live in a place like that? As the teacher of Ecclesiastes tells us, there's nothing new under the sun. Our hearts are not only bent towards sin just as much as these people, but bent in the exact same ways too. We believe the same lies they believed 2,500 years earlier. Even today, a man is judged by the size of his wallet and a woman by the size of her dress. And even Christians, we Christians who know the Bible teaches that God sees not as man sees, we fall into this trap. We get caught up in possessions or attractiveness assets or, or power, but, but we know this is foolishness to pursue. And looking further at Esther chapter 2, we can see that this contest wasn't actually a beauty contest. Looking down at verses 12 through 14, we get some details on how this plan worked. During the year, before each young woman's turn to go to King Ahasuerus, the harem regulation required her to receive beauty treatments with oil of myrrh for six months and then perfumes and cosmetics for another six months. When the young woman would go to the king, she was given whatever she requested to take with her from the harem to the palace. She would go in the evening, and in the morning she would return to a second harem under the supervision of the king's eunuch, Shazgaz, keeper of the concubines. She never went to the king again unless he desired her and summoned her by name. This is one of the most profoundly vain and selfish ideas ever spoken aloud. Not only that, it is exceedingly wicked. Think of the implications of such a plan. Once a woman entered the harem, she became a concubine of the king. She would live a life of relative comfort and ease, but she would never marry 
unless the king chose her as queen. If the king liked her, he may call upon her from time to time to join him in his bed, but she would never have his commitment. If he impregnated her, she would not have a father around to help instruct and discipline her children. But we can spread that net of implication even further. Not only are these women ignored in their desires and brought into this harem, regardless of what they want to satisfy the king's desire for his own pleasure, now there are hundreds fewer marriageable young women all across the empire. There are daughters disappearing day by day, sisters, friends snatched from their social circles never to return. Families across the empire are broken because the king was feeling lonely that the woman he banished was gone. And there's a, a further class of people we haven't considered thus far in the story. We've read their names in both chapters one and two, but you might not have noticed. I'm referring to the eunuchs who serve in the king's palace. These servants would likely have been brought to the palace when they were boys and castrated. This was done so that they could serve in the presence of the queen or concubines without the king having to worry that he might not be the exclusive lover of these women. Like the women brought into the harem, the sexuality of these young men belonged to the king. We should shudder at the horror of these atrocities, but we should also realize that in our day and age, we are not so different from the king. We lack the power he had, the cultural acceptance of such practices. But what is pornography, if not the use of another's sexuality for one's own pleasure? We must confront that our own sins are not so different from those of the empire. So I've spent a good amount of time looking at the wicked plans, but my point here is that God works in those wicked plans. And here is where it's important to realize that there is an enormous difference between something being good and something being used for good. There's a difference between something working out according to God's plan and something according with God's law. And we have a difficulty reconciling this, this idea that things can, can be for good and yet not be good, but it's a category that Christians must have. And it's indeed something we already do on a day-to-day basis. Think of vegetables, for instance. We all know that vegetables allegedly are good for us, but yet many of us don't eat them as much as we think we should. This is because vegetables are bad. They taste like garbage. And you can try to argue with me, but the fact is if vegetables tasted like ice cream, we'd all be much healthier. No parent ever has to sit at the dinner table making ultimatums with their children to get them to finish their ice cream. Yet we know God has designed our bodies to benefit from the eating of nasty vegetables. Though it is not enjoyable, it brings about desirable outcomes. In the same way, when we suffer from our own foolishness or from, especially from the sins of others, it is not enjoyable. We know this is not right, but even in those moments, God is working to bring about desirable outcomes. He is working towards his glorious purpose. We believe even the decisions of men are subject to the sovereign will of God, who is working in and above those plans, superintending all things toward his own end. Think of the account of Joseph. Joseph, his brothers initially left him for dead, and then, for good measure, sold him into slavery. He was sinned against by Potiphar's wife, sinned against by his fellow prisoner who forgot to mention him to Pharaoh. And yet, despite all this, when his brothers came to Egypt, 
What is it he tells them? You meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. You meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. That brings us to our our second point. God works in every minor detail. Let's look back at the text, verses 5 through 11. In the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Kish had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jeconiah of Judah into exile. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin Hadassah, that is Esther, because she had no father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good looking. When her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. When the king's command and edict became public knowledge, and when many of the young women were gathered at the fortress of Susa under Haggai's supervision, Esther was taken to the palace, into the supervision of Haggai, keeper of the women. The young woman pleased him and gained his favor, so that he accelerated the process of the beauty treatments and the special diet she received. He assigned seven hand-picked female servants to her from the palace and transferred her and her servants to the harem's best quarters. Esther did not reveal her ethnicity or her family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. Every day, Mordecai took a walk in front of the harem's courtyard to learn how Esther was doing and to see what was happening to her. There's a a pastor I know of who preached through the book of Esther and titled his sermon series, It Just So Happened That. His point in that title is to draw attention to the many seeming coincidences that take place in this story. And the sheer total of those coincidences can only be explained by the providential care of a loving God. And the way the story unfolds here in chapter 2 shows that to be the case. After learning about the king's plan in verses 1 through 4, we'd expect to see that play out. But first, we must learn that it just so happens that there is a Jew living in the fortress of Susa. who just so happens to have a beautiful adopted daughter. First, let's, let's look at Mordecai. There are several things we must understand about Mordecai. The first is his family. Mordecai is of the tribe of Benjamin, his father, grandfather and great-grandfather are named, and his great-grandfather's name might look familiar to you. If you've studied 1 Samuel, you might remember there's another member of the tribe of Benjamin named Kish. Saul, the first king of Israel, was of the tribe of Benjamin, son of a man named Kish. Now, we know this can't be the same, Kish, since the exile took place some 500 years after Saul's reign, but the Holy Spirit, in inspiring these words, certainly intends that we connect the dots. As with many of the details in this chapter, the full importance of this will only become apparent after the fact. Next week, Pastor Brandon will preach Esther 3 and will be, or excuse me, will be introduced to the last major character of the story, who also has a significant family history. But we'll leave that aside for now. I want to take a moment here to point out that this is how the providence of God works. Providence is it's a bit of a technical term, but it is crucial to understanding not only the book of Esther, but your Bible. And not only that, to understanding your life. Only when we understand God's providence can we make sense of the things happening in our lives. Louis Burkhoff, a 20th century theologian, defines providence as the continued exercise of God's divine energy, whereby the creator preserves all his creatures, is operating in all that comes to pass in the world, and directs all things to their appointed end. 
there's a, a tendency among Christians today, I've done it, I'm sure many of you have as well, and certainly most of you have heard, something described as a God thing. We tend to use this phrase when something we did not plan for and intend turns out in a way we did not expect, but that we recognize as for our good and God's glory. Perhaps you were unable to go on a trip that you had planned because of some unforeseen circumstance, but then while you were supposed to be gone, a loved one falls ill and you're able to be there with them. That's a God thing. Perhaps you didn't get the job offer you really wanted, but then an even better one you weren't expecting comes along. A God thing. You blew out a tire but had an evangelistic conversation while waiting in the lobby of Discount Tire. God thing. What we Christians actually believe is that all the things that happen in our lives are God things, whether we recognize them as such or not. The problem is, like those images captured by the Hubble telescope, we don't have eyes to see everything that God is up to in our lives. John Piper puts it like this, at any given moment, God is doing 10,000 things in your life, and you might be aware of three of them. In Esther 2, verse 5, we begin to understand God has been working towards this moment since eternity passed. And over the course of over 500 years, he has directed the events of the world powers. He has orchestrated history to set Mordecai up to succeed where his uncle Saul failed. But on that point, I'll digress for now. That's for a later week. We'll move on now to verse 6. And the, the CSB translation here takes a little bit of the edge off of this verse it really should read something like, he had been exiled from Jerusalem with the other exiles who were exiled when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took Jeconia of Judah into exile. I think there's something the author wants us to know about Mordecai here, and that's that he was in exile. We can reasonably assume from the data we have here that Mordecai worked in some official capacity for the kingdom of Persia. He lived in the citadel, the fortress. As we'll see later, he sat at the king's gate. And in Persia, the king's gate wasn't a literal you know, iron door, but instead a large stone building at the front of the fortress, which functioned as a sort of administrative office for the kingdom. So he worked in some capacity for the king, but the really crucial details what do you know about Mordecai? Or that he was of the tribe of Benjamin and that he was living as an exile, one of God's people in a pagan empire. In this way, we might think to look to Esther as instructive for how Christians are to live among the world today. We too are exiles living in a pagan kingdom whose home is the kingdom of God, but for now we reside here. We must resist the urge, however, to assign the title of hero too quickly. As we'll see, Mordecai and Esther, if they are heroes, are heroes of, at best, questionable morality. Just like the sins of David, of Abraham, of Moses, we see that these are complicated people who don't necessarily deserve our undying cheers. Finally, in verse 7, chapter 2, we meet Esther, the title character of this book. We learn her Hebrew name is Hadassah, but for the rest of the story, she'll be referred to exclusively as Esther. And we see a couple more instances of just so happens here. Esther just so happens to be an orphan. And while there's surely a tragic story there, we're not privy to it. Nonetheless, it's an important detail because since she has been orphaned, she just so happens to live with her uncle Mordecai in the citadel of Susa. One final fact we learn of Esther is that she just so happens to be beautiful. And though that may not seem that significant, it is that fact, the fact of her beauty, 
that the fate of every Jew in the kingdom of Persia depends upon right now. So Esther is taken into the harem with the other contestants of Persia's next top queen. And notice that we don't hear from Esther at all in this portion of the story. We have no idea whether she went willingly or not. We don't know whether she desired to be queen or not. Whether this is what she wants or not, this is where she finds herself. We see almost immediately that something is different about Esther. See, see that she has gained favor from the chief eunuch, Haggai. This word translated as favor is the Hebrew word hesed, which appears many times throughout the Old Testament. It's often translated as steadfast love, kindness, loving kindness. And it is characteristic of the way God deals with his people. So we see here as, as she gains favor with Haggai, later we'll see she gains favor with all people and finally favor with the king. This is God clearing the path for her through his steadfast love to accomplish his glorious purpose. She, she gets this favor, she receives special treatment, and then we find out an interesting detail. This, this detail sets up the tension, the whole rest of the book of Esther. In verse 10, we are told she has kept her ethnicity a secret at the instruction of her guardian, Mordecai. This fact, like Mordecai's lineage, is interesting in passing, but takes on titanic importance as the story progresses. The secret is not very consequential right now, but as Haman plots the annihilation of the Jews, this seemingly small detail will turn the tide of history. So we have a few select details that we learn about Mordecai and Esther. The Jewishness, Mordecai's lineage, Esther's beauty. On their own, none of these are that remarkable. But that too teaches us about how providence works. From our human perspective, the providence of God can only make sense looking backward. It is only after the fact we can look back and see how God was working in those little details to bring about his plan. Only God knows the end from the beginning. That's why he's God and you are not. He often works in ways you would not expect. He even works when we find ourselves in places we shouldn't be doing things we shouldn't do. Which brings me to my third point. God works in undesirable circumstances. Let's read verses 15 through 18. Esther was the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai who had adopted her as his own daughter. When her turn came to go to the king, she did not, she did not ask for anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, suggested. Esther gained favor in the eyes of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Ahasuerus in the palace in the tenth month, the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other virgins. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Ashti. The king held a great banquet for all his officials and staff. It was Esther's banquet. He freed his promises from the tax payments and gave gifts worthy of the king's bounty. First, we need to acknowledge from the outset that this is not a God-honoring beginning to a relationship. Nothing Esther has done thus far has been commendable except her obedience to Mordecai. She has kept the fifth commandment by honoring the man who has become her father. And this is why I mentioned earlier that if indeed we are to see these people as heroes, they are morally questionable ones at best. But this is actually a good thing. 
Because if the Bible were filled with morally upright heroes, we might be led to believe that God only saves and uses those who have a righteousness of their own to bring to the table. As it is, the story of the Bible is full of liars, cowards, drunkards, adulterers, thieves, murderers. We see people who are greedy, vain, selfish, lazy, arrogant, and yet God saves these people. Not only that, he uses them and raises them up to high places that he might glorify himself in them. That's good news for sinners like you and me. But here Esther has arrived. After the beautification process, after all that waiting, it is her chance to become queen. She has one night to please the king at the risk of living in the second harem the rest of her life, cut off from her community, waiting on the king to call her name again. And I want to point out here that this is the best the world can offer. The world says, if you are the best of the best, and you do all you can to make yourself even better, maybe I will remember you. Maybe I will call out your name. And if you really exceed all expectations, maybe even I will please you as a spouse. That's the kind of bar you have to clear for the world to offer even a moment of satisfaction. But I know a story of another king. This king is also looking for a bride. But he doesn't say, make yourself beautiful as you can, and maybe I'll accept you. He says, come as you are, and I will make you beautiful. He doesn't demand you glorify yourself so that you might be good enough to stand next to him. Instead, as the old song says, mild he lays his glory by. The king, the king of kings, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, and being found in human form, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus did this. He humbled himself. He died to make the church his bride. And there was no beautification process necessary. No six months of myrrh and six months of ointments. He can be yours with only a word. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God works in undesirable circumstances. Esther was, was passed from one man to another. She was under the care of Mordecai, taken to Haggai, then taken to the king. And it seems to us it would be better for that to not happen. But God worked in these undesirable circumstances that he might raise Esther up to a place of power to deliver her people. Jesus, too, was passed from one man to the next. The Jewish council handed him off to the Palestinian king's who sent him back and finally to the, the Roman Empire to be crucified. It seemed to his followers at that time it would have been better for that not to happen, that God worked in those undesirable circumstances, that he might raise Jesus up to a place of power to deliver his people. At this point in the story, Esther has risen to queen. She's been put into place for the glorious work that God will do through her. But there is one more detail in this chapter to finish setting up our story. There's one more just so happens in Esther 2. Let's look at the last few verses, starting in 19. When the virgins were gathered 
A second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther still did not reveal her family background or her ethnicity as Mordecai had directed her. She obeyed Mordecai's orders as she always had while he raised her. During those days while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, became infuriated and planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. When Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported it to Queen Esther, and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. When the, port, when the report was investigated and verified, both men were hanged on the gallows. This event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. Again, the narrator points out how Esther always obeys Mordecai, saying she had always done so. And that fact helps us understand both this brief anecdote as well as the larger action of the book that we will see later. Mordecai is going about his business. He's you know, literally just doing his job at the king's gate, and he overhears a plot from two members of the king's personal guard. These men intend to kill King Xerxes. Ironically, he will eventually die by the hand of one of his trusted personal guard. But in this instance, he is saved by Mordecai, who sends word to Esther, who tells the king on Mordecai's behalf. In a bit of foreshadowing, these men were hanged on what your translation probably calls gallows. But that's a bit misleading. Uh, in actuality, the Persian method of capital punishment was to impale criminals on a large wooden stake. Not quite as slow and painful as the Roman crucifixion, but it got the point across. In the very last sentence of chapter 2, however, we find the final coincidence. The event was recorded in the king's historical record. But that's it. Now, you would think the king owing this man his life would afford him a little more than just an official note in a historical record. And in fact, Persian kings often were known for their generosity, particularly those who had done good for them. But in this case, there is an oversight. But this brief story is merely a setup for a twist coming later when you least expect it. For now, let's, let's talk about the virtue of doing a good deed for a bad man. Mordecai saves the life of the king. Does he do it because he loves the king? We are not told, though that seems unlikely. Does he do it in expectation of a reward? Apparently not, because he never brings it up over the five years it takes to finally be rewarded. I think Mordecai does this for the simple reason that it was the right thing to do. Perhaps he had in mind the prophet Jeremiah's words, Jeremiah 29, verse 7, where in his letter to the exiles, Jeremiah commands them, seek the good of the city where you are found. God's people are not merely blessed for their own sake, but to be a blessing to others. As Martin Luther puts it, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. In Titus 3, Paul tells Titus to remind his congregation to submit to rulers and authorities, to do good to all people because of the love of God who has saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of his mercy. And then in Titus 3.8, Paul writes, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. Paul clearly demonstrates your good deeds are not able to save you. God saved you according to his mercy. 
but your good deeds are necessary for the profit of everyone else. So we are to, good to, we are to do good to our neighbor, as Mordecai did. And we must also not do it for the sake of reward, like Mordecai. Let your good deeds be done in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. When we demand recognition, we rob God of the opportunity to bless us. The reward we will receive from him blows any other reward out of the water. Some of the most damning words in the New Testament are when Jesus says that he uh, that when those who do their good deeds in front of others to receive their recognition have their reward in full. There is no reward waiting for them. We, however, must look to the future reward, the kingdom of God, where God himself will be our king and dwell among us. For now, we must endure under the rule of the empire of this world. We must live with the wicked plans of men. We must suffer undesirable circumstances. We must deal with all the details only God can sort out. And in all this, we are called to faithfulness to him who has called us. First Peter 4.19 says it like this. So then, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. I want to close here by, by reading the lyrics of an old but good hymn. Whatever my God ordains is right, his holy will abides. I will be still whatever he does and follow where he guides. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall. Therefore to him I leave it all. Whatever my God ordains is right, he never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know he will not leave me. I take content what he has sent. His hand can turn my griefs away, and patiently I wait his day. Whatever my God ordains is right, though now this cup in drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart, I take it all unshrinking. My God is true each morning new. Sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. Whatever my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow need or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to him I leave it all. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. God, we put no confidence in the flesh, no uh, hope in, in my own ability to get these, these points across, to, to understand and to apply your word. But God, by your spirit, would you help us? Would you comfort the discouraged? Would you warn the idle? Would you help the weak? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.